All right, so uh, tonight, uh, September 4th, and this is the third uh, Beginnings and Endings class, we're going to talk about the sermon from last week, uh, where we talked about creation as God's temple, a temple that God was creating for communion, uh, and creating uh, the whole universe as the, the means through which we experience communion, communion with God, communion with one another. Um, and uh, yeah, again, I've got, I've got a few things that I could uh, teach on and talk about, but I am, first of all, curious to hear if you guys had any kairoses that came up. And uh, in the group meeting, I talked about, uh, Matt sent this out before, but a good way to think about what a kairos is, is basically like, as I heard that sermon, as I listened to it, did I experience any clarity, an aha moment? Did I experience any uh, con uh, confusion, like a huh moment? Uh, did I experience any conviction, like a, uh-oh, I better pay attention to this moment? Uh, or perhaps even a conflict, like, nah, nah, that's not right. Um, whatever those words. Or maybe just a question that you had uh, as you came out of that sermon. So would love to hear uh, from one to all of you about that. Anybody got something they want to throw out there before we get started? Or as we get started? You don't all have to have something, but I am curious what you thought. I'd love to hear some responses. Okay, fair enough. Oh, you've got one, Nancy. There we go. Speaking of riveting podcast material. Oh, you're not quite unmuted yet, Nancy. Okay. Now you're there. There we go. Go ahead. Great. Okay. So, um, yeah, this was a Kairos kind of a question that I'm not sure about. I mean, I had Bible, Old Testament history way back when in college, but um, you had talked about um, that the story of creation was told to the Israelites while they were in exile. And that was basically the first time they had heard it. And it's um, so Genesis is a part of the Pentateuch. So I, my question was just at what point, so since when was the Pentateuch part of the Israelite story or their liturgy? So at what point was, did it all just start while they were in exile or? Yeah, yeah. that's a great question. Uh, and I'm not totally sure on the answer, um, but uh, I do suspect that before, I, I think probably what happened is it was written down during, during that time. Um, but I'm sure that there were oral, there's oral tradition, you know, and that's, that's why they call them the books of Moses is according to oral tradition. It was, it was, you know, passed down from Moses in that tradition. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know if there's uh, I don't know if anybody else has a better answer. If you've studied this more recently than I have. Um, I don't know if it's better. I guess just the, my, the question was. Go, Go ahead, ahead, Nancy. What was the question? Well, it was just that if, if they didn't really hear about the creation story mm -hmm. uh, until they were in exile, and I, I get it, what you were talking about as to why they would have needed to hear it then. Just wondering yeah. what other parts, uh, at what point. I'm sorry, I like history. So I just. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Yeah, Do you have another answer, Matt, or another response to that? Well, I think, first of all, we don't have any evidence that the Israelites knew their story before the exile, mm. but we don't have any evidence they didn't. Yeah. So it's, this is one of the interesting things about the Hebrew scripture, and actually it's the same thing with the New Testament scripture, is that usually what we get handed down in history is like, the victor's story. Right. Right. We get Egypt's tale. We get Babylon's tale. We get America's tale. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, uh, like we get, we get like the American version of, um, of how we got the land from the native Americans. We don't get the native American story for how we got the land from the native Americans. That's another way to say that. So it's very rare that, that somebody like the Israelites who really never had power, that we have their story preserved. It's a rare historical thing. Um, 
I, I mentioned this in passing in the first sermon. I think that a lot of the comments that I've made about how the context fits, fits Bap- Babylonian exile and the Babylonian like creation stories and founding myths, it also fits contextually and culturally uh, in Egypt as well. Mm-hmm. So you really only need like something written down if you've got a major shift where you have to figure out who are we and who is God and how do we live? Like if you, like there's, so it's an oral culture. So there's just a bunch of stories that are told, but these, these shifts from either coming out of Egypt or coming out of Babylon, which happened probably 500 years apart. I mean, there's tons of evidence that the Babylonian exile and return happened. There isn't much evidence that the Egyptian exile uh, and return happened and the exodus from Egypt happened. Um, So I guess my only point is I'm agnostic. I I don't know if we can know about when it all happened. I think it's, uh, I think the best way to read the text in light of a context is to read it as a response to a people who are leaving an empire that has uh, cultural narratives about how things came to be, who are the gods, who rules, uh, what are humans for, what is God like, um, and what are we to do? Like, what's the problem? What's the solution? Like, these are all, these are all questions and answers that were told via stories. And they're very similar contours in both Egypt and Babylon. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah, I think the, the yeah. thing that's, that's... Is that helpful? Is that helpful, Nancy? Yeah, good. Yeah, I think the, the thing that's important to, uh, to remember, because this, this is different from how we think about these kinds of things, which is why I think we get hung up on how many days did creation take? Like, we think that's what Genesis is just trying to say, but it's not. Like, this wasn't written down because we need to know what happened in the past just because, you know, because it's interesting. You know, like, that, that was never a, a construct that the ancient mind would have thought of. They were all kind of written down for a reason. There was a purpose. There was something happening that, that made this necessary for identity formation. So, and, and that was the point of it, identity formation, you know which is similar to how we're trying to use the text and preach it today as well to say, you know, because it functioned this way back then, it functions that way today. How do we make the connections and draw the lines? Good. Yeah. Good. Anything else, guys? Question? Kairos? Joel? Rocky? Yes. Yes, teacher. Um, yeah, this was a, this was an interesting Kairos because um, it was, a, it, I, I really enjoyed the sermon. Um, it was, you, you were affirming that uh, creation, the earth and the cosmos and everything created is God created to, to be God's dwelling. And, and we are a part of that. Right. And, and like he, basically there is no plan B, like God didn't, <laughs> God doesn't decide I'm going to chuck all that out and start over again. And then you, and then you uh, mentioned something about uh, like the flood story. He said, um, and, and I noticed that when you're, when you're, when you're mentioning that, uh, the way you framed it, uh, the way you just mentioned it, because you mentioned it in passing and then said, you know, we'll talk about that later another time. Um, but it made me think, because even the flood story, when, when we start talking about it, uh, as if the point of the story is that it somehow happened in history, um, that makes me go, it, 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 it makes me have a Kairos, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Because for me, um, I've, I'm kind of, I've kind of come to this place where, I mean, the, the text, the Hebrew text is doing something, is telling a story that is similar to um, 
other flood stories um, from the, that time and, and earlier. And so the point of the story I've come to find is about how, how is this God different than the other gods? Maybe similar to the creation stories. Um, but it can cause me too. I think this is the reaction I'm having to, to maybe miss how important that story is to our story. And how do we, how do we understand these stories? I, I think it's the same thing we've been talking about over and over again, but like, how do we understand these stories? If we, don't understand them as like, this is a literal historical account of the way that God moved and the, and responded to humanity and creation. Um, and if they're not, that doesn't mean that, that they don't lose their meaning or that they're any less powerful, but it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. How do we, especially with all the embedded, you know, ways that we have, have, uh, have, no, read scripture for a lot of us yeah totally so i, I hate narrating like yeah yeah so it's the, the kairos is uh it used to be that i thought that this story is important because it's the literal historical truth and it's important to believe that it is that then you start kind of shifting away from that and saying actually maybe it's not so important to to affirm that it's literal historical truth but then the temptation is to say well what good's the story I guess it's good for nothing, or I guess we ignore it, or I guess I don't know what to do with it. But the challenge is to sort of like take it seriously on its own terms, right? Yes. Like how do I take this story seriously for what it is for me today, you know, rather than try to make it into something it's not supposed to be, or just chuck it because it refuses to be what I want it to be? Yeah? Yes, yeah. And again, I think that was sort of like a, a sidestep from the – from the sermon, but yet it was something I noticed, like, yeah, myself. That I was like, yeah. yeah, just just yeah. parenthetically, we're going to talk a lot about that this Sunday. So, so we've talked about um, like what is this text doing? And that was Nancy's question. It's giving people an identity who don't have one, in, in orienting their story in a world. Um, then Ben uh, also preached on kind of what's happening with creation, like. Like, why is this written? Like, well, it's written to give them a story. What is it? Well, it's a temple. It's God's dwelling place. And then the two questions we most normally ask of Genesis are how and when. Like, how did creation happen? Well, it happened in six days by God speaking. And then when did it happen? 6,000 years ago. Because you can trace all the genealogies and that gets you to where when it happened. And so we're going to talk about how um, we have to ask the questions of the text that they're prepared to answer. And I think the questions that the floods prepared to answer and the questions that creation accounts are prepared to answer are sometimes different than the questions we wanted to answer. So that gets a little bit of your question, Joel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. 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 Anything else, guys? Anything popping for you? Okay. A couple things that we could go over that uh, are of interest to me that I hope would be of interest to you. Um, one thing is diving into um, more of how we didn't get into this uh, a whole lot in the sermon, but basically, you know, if Genesis is this uh, creation of God's temple, um, uh, then the gospel of John, a lot of people think was written as a new creation narrative. The whole gospel is a creation narrative. It starts in the exact, the exact same way, right? In the beginning, Right. And um, and I, I found it really interesting uh, to, to think about it in that way. Um, and I wondered if you guys wanted to just just waltz through the Gospel of John a little bit and show how what John is indicating here is that we're looking at a new creation narrative. Right. So it, initially it says in the beginning. And of course, uh, John initially just gives us Jesus. Right. In the beginning was the word the, um, and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, which, of course, has, you know, these creational 
kind of elements. And then, of course, we get down to the, the word made as dwelling among us, uh, which was um, essentially the uh, analogous to the, the image of God that was placed in the garden in Genesis, right? So the image of God is placed in the garden. Um, that the word making is dwelling among us is, is analogous to that. And there's actually something at the end of the gospel that uh, even, even more so. Um, have you guys ever heard of the seven signs of the gospel of John? Just going to look them up here. I, I took some notes on them. Um, those, uh, a lot of theologians have said, are similar to the seven days of creation. Um, and so uh, the seven signs are changing the water to wine, John 2, 1 through 11. Um, and it actually says there, this was the first of the signs uh, that Jesus did. And then John, John's gospel goes into talking about the healing of the royal official's son in John 4, the healing of the paralytic at Beth, Bethesda, John 5, feeding the 5,000, John 6, uh, and then later in John 6, Jesus walking on water. Some people think that's the same sign, but for now, let's go. That's the, the fifth sign. The sixth sign is the healing of the man born blind in John 9. And then the raising of Lazarus is the seventh sign, John 11. And then from, from there on in, it goes into the, you know, the, the Last Supper and the crucifixion and, and the trial. It's interesting what Pilate says in the Gospel of John about Jesus. Um, Behold the man. You guys, you guys remember that? I'm flying through this, but like, behold the man, which is basically the sixth day, right? Where God places Adam, mankind, or Adam and Eve in the garden as his image. Behold the man. And then uh, the crucifixion takes place. And of course, then at the end, the resurrection is seen as the eighth sign, which is basically a new creation gets born kind of out of, out of the old. And so God recreates the world in seven kind of seven days in the gospel of John. The resurrection is this kind of the beginning of, of, of new creation. Um, so there's this week of creation and then new creation. And that's what Mary discovers in the garden. Notice where she is, right? She comes to the garden and there's the man. Behold the man in the garden. And we've got new creation. Isn't that cool? I just thought that was really cool. But that's what John was doing. It's, it's super cool. <laughs> But this is, but like what Ben's describing is how ancient people read scripture. Yeah, they would have seen that right away. And they would have, how do I tell the story of Jesus? Well, God is making all things new in Christ. So I'm going to tell the story of Jesus as a new creation. Yeah. So it's, um, there's a theological way of reading scripture where you see themes and patterns and typology and um, aspects. And then you decide rather than I'm going to tell the story from a news reporter point of view, or I'm going to tell a story from a historian point of view. I mean, Luke tells us he does a history thing. Others say, I'm going to tell the story with this theological. So like the truthiest thing I can tell about Jesus is what he means. Right. Not exactly what he did. And this gets back to our epistemology discussion from last week. Um, like, how do we know what we know? And what is truth? How do we know what's real and what's true? Well, we have very modern ways of answering that question. But like mm-hmm. Ben was saying, the gospel, the, the writer of the gospel of John didn't set out to like, uh, his primary concern wasn't, I need to court reporter Jesus's life. Right. The primary concern was I need to communicate what this guy means for this community. Yeah. 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 Which is why he's got stories that none of the other gospel writers have and why that's frustrated people for a long time. Like what is John doing with his, like, you know, when did the, when did the cleansing of the temple take place? We, we wonder about that. Was it at the end of his ministry or John says it's the beginning of his ministry. When was it? It doesn't really matter. John's organizing it in a different way. He's organizing the material in a different way. So, Becky, were you going to say something? Yeah, um, I just want to say that uh, the more I learn to look at the Bible in a very different way than I feel like I was raised with, the cooler it actually is. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. I totally agree. And the more daunting, the more I'm kind of like, I can read this, but I know I'm not going to understand it. Yeah, Um, yeah. But... 
I, besides just like our sermon series right now, I've been doing more of my own reading about things that other people have written about the Bible. And I'm just like, how did, how did I go growing up my whole life, you know, in a Christian setting, not knowing these things? Yes. Like it's so, it makes so much sense and it's so much better to read it this way Mm -hmm. um, that I just don't understand why everyone doesn't. Yes. Yes. There are, there are reasons. <laughs> Which we don't need to get into. But uh, if you guys are interested in this, um, I'm listening to this podcast series from uh, a podcast called Almost Heretical. So it's fine. It's not completely heretical or it's not, it's not actually heretical. It's just almost. So it's fine. No, but these, these guys are two former pastors who are sort of doing what you're talking about, Becky. They're reexamining the Bible and the passages with that, they thought it meant this and now they're realizing and they um they have a ser- i don't know if it's the latest thing on their podcast but if you look up uh their series on uh gender it's like gender in the new testament i can't remember what it's called but they basically are going through this new book from cynthia westfall on paul and gender and basically going through all the passages on paul from paul that that people have looked at and thought oh my gosh like guy's a total misogynist, you know, or whatever, or they, or they at least think that he's espousing some complementarian, you know, kind of um, uh, theology. And it's fascinating to go, like Cynthia Westfall has done some incredible scholarly research to show that in almost every case, well, I think in every case, Paul was doing the exact opposite of what everybody thinks he's doing. And the only reason that we think it's obvious that he's doing what he's doing is because we've read through these other filters, these other lenses. Mm-hmm. We've come to the text with the assumption of patriarchy and we find it there. But as soon as it's all it takes is somebody to come to the text without that assumption and you start to see all kinds of things happening in that text. And it's not just a different way of reading the text. It's actually a way that makes more sense of what's there. Right? It's, a, it's a consistent hermeneutic that actually reveals that what Paul is doing is continuing the project of Jesus, which was to abolish any form of hierarchy, status distinctions between groups of people, men and women, Jew and Gentile, whatever it was, in Christ they're abolished. And so it actually makes way more sense of the text to say, yeah, Paul is actually doing that with male and female too. Status is abolished. So anyway, it's been... It's been uh, it's been, it's had the same effect on me as what you're talking about, Becky. It's just like, these aren't embarrassing for me to read anymore. I'm like, Oh, you, you go, Paul. Yeah. Like you tell them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. anyway. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Becky. I agree. I agree. Any other comments, thoughts, Josie? Oh, I thought you hit your mute button. I thought you, I was getting ready to hear from Josie. Shoot. All right. You want to say anything? Just say anything. Say something. Make a comment. If you can there. figure it out. There you go. There. I was trying to figure out my phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I guess my Kairos, as you were talking about John and comparing that with Genesis, was just the whole notion of God with us. Mm. And it, I don't know, it just became even more apparent with me that John is trying to communicate that Eden is here yeah. and God is with us now, right? Through his own creation narrative. So whenever you said that, I just, you know, the word like Emmanuel, God with us just kind of came to mind. So yes. that this makes a lot of sense why John would communicate it this way. Yeah. 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 John communicates in his way of saying the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right. And then he goes through this whole story of saying, we've got the the garden and behold the man and all this stuff. Uh, It was beautiful. But the text I almost picked for the new, for the gospel text was um, that passage, Emmanuel, that his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the end of Matthew, right, Matthew 28, what does Jesus say to the disciples? Go, here's the great commission, go make disciples, teaching them. And hey, I'm with you. I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Like it, it happened. He is God with us to the end of the age, you know? They're making, they're making the same point in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. Yeah. That leads into something else that uh, Matt forwarded me an article um, 
from uh, Greg Boyd, his website, renew.org, um, that talks about the gap theory. I think it relates to this a little bit. Um, I'd love to throw this out and see what you guys think. Um, I, I think I made allusion to this um, on one of the other calls, but have you guys ever heard of the gap theory? The gap theory is that um, in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, between those two verses, there is a huge gap in time that nobody knows anything about, basically. Like, that's the gap theory. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then now the earth was formless and void. That basically that's not the way God wanted it necessarily. And so the theory goes like this, that formless and void, which in Hebrew is tohu vabohu, which is fun to say, so it's fun to know. Um, so formless and void or empty is tohu vabohu. And so the, the earth was formless and void. And this wasn't a good thing, right? That formlessness and emptiness, something had happened to the creation um, that God was like, the theory is that God was training angels and they didn't do a very good job. <laughs> Which, you know, when you're training somebody, what do you expect? Um, and so, the, you know, the angels are supposed to take care of creation and some of them rebelled and some of them, you know, shirked their duties or it's all speculation, who knows. But basically what God is doing in Genesis 1 is not just like on a Thursday, he was like, you know what, I think I'll create the heavens and the earth. This will be interesting. Let's see how this works out, right? He wasn't just like, you know, had an idea and thought he'd try something out. He was from the beginning, like entering into a situation in order to create something good out of something that had gone terribly wrong. So God's been at war from the very beginning against formlessness and emptiness, right? And so you see this in the creation narrative, right? The first three days of creation, some, this is the, how the theory goes, the first three days are combating the formlessness, the tohu, by creating space, right? So, and it's from the perspective, here's the other part about it, it's from the perspective of somebody who's on the earth watching it happen, right? So it's not that light existed before stars existed. It's just, here's what they're noticing happening. So in the midst of this formlessness, in the midst of this emptiness, in the midst of this tohu vabohu, God, spirits hovering over the waters, God creates light and dark, right? He, he separates things out. He makes distinctions. He creates space for things. He separates water from water. So we've got sky and we've got water separates things. And then you've got land from sea, right? So he's creating these spaces out of the formlessness. And then days three through six, he's filling the spaces with stuff, which combats the emptiness, right? So if it's formless, you need to create structure and space. If it's empty, you need to fill it with stuff. And so the sky gets filled with birds, the sea gets filled with fish, the land has vegetation, and then it gets filled with all the creepy crawly creatures. And it's all good, right? So in, in contrast to the formlessness, there's space and it's good. In contrast to the emptiness, there's stuff and it's good. And then God places man uh, in the midst of it to, to, to do that. And then in Genesis 2, which is, um, I, don't know if, I don't know if this is completely clear to you guys, but Genesis 2 is another creation account. Basically, Genesis 1 happens and then it's like Genesis 2 is like, to put it another way, Here's another, here's an, let me just say it again, another way, right? And that's when we have the Garden of Eden, right? Which is, there's all kinds of allusions to the temple in the Garden of Eden as well. Like it faces east, there's rivers flowing out of it, all kinds of, all kinds of temple uh, allusions. Um, but if you, you bring those two narratives together and the picture it shows you is that what God was doing in creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 was not necessarily doing, every, doing the whole universe or even the whole earth. But what he was doing in Genesis 1 was actually the garden, that he was establishing a beachhead in the midst of the tohu, the tohu vabohu, establishing a beachhead of goodness that was intended to, through his image, ruling on his behalf, expand to the whole earth, right? So he says, multiply, fill the earth with this goodness, the stuff and this stuff and this structure that I've made for you. You know, name the animals. It's not good for man to be alone, man and woman, male and female, together, you know, go and rule the earth. And so the implications of this, that I'd love to hear what you guys think about this. So the implications of this are, number one, life was not perfect before the fall.
bad things didn't enter creation through the fall. I think we offended Matt. He's gone. Um, Right? So that's the implication of this theory, that God has always been warring against this formlessness and this emptiness. And the Garden of Eden was a beachhead. And when, when humanity fell, it was just God adjusted his plan. He didn't give up. He just said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna. to, he probably looked forward into the future and said, I'll probably need to become one of you. <laughs> I'll, I'll need to become one of you to make this real. Um, and that's part of the beauty of the incarnation is God refuses to be God without us. Uh, he actually becomes flesh and blood, creates the world in love and loves the world he creates and becomes the good humanity that he loves. Anyway, um, so yeah, what, what, like what comes to your mind as you think about that possibility that God has always been at work to establish goodness in the midst of chaos, formlessness, emptiness, that that stuff didn't enter the world through the fall. Are there implications that come to your mind? Are there kairoses that you have? Does that present any problems for you theologically? I mean, it's just a theory, but I think it's a really compelling and interesting theory. Sure. Yeah, I'll say something. Uh, it certainly changes the way that we understand uh, the nature and the work of, of Jesus. Um, hmm. The way we understand it, if, if Jesus is if the whole life of Jesus wasn't to remedy this thing that was always perfect until we screwed it up. Yeah. That's just one, one, like, you know, one way that. Right. It's a I goal. was told to see it, you know, yeah. Yeah. at some point in my life. So. Yeah. That's, that's great. So it, it basically, one of the implications is the incarnation wasn't just to fix some sort of problem. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It wasn't just to fix a problem that maybe something bigger was going on there. Yeah. One of the, one of the quotes that um, kind of blew my mind in that regard uh, was when I was reading this book by Simon Chan called liturgical theology, which if you're interested in liturgical theology, it's one of the best books out there. But, um, but he talks about basically talks about, uh, communion, like being the whole purpose and the whole goal of all creation from, from, from the very beginning. So he says, even if mankind wouldn't have fallen, Christ still would have needed to come because this isn't complete until God and man are one and they're one in Christ. Yeah. Right. Right. Joel's making the mind blown. Yeah. Sign. Yeah. It blew my mind that this, this has always been what God was up to becoming so integrated with his own creation that, that we become one. So it wasn't just to fix a problem. Good. Any, any other kairoses or questions or yeah, even conflicts with the way that you think about things theologically that come up for you as you think about that theory? Well, I think part of the way he describes it uh, in that article I sent you is that um, the, first, the first part of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void, mm-hmm. right? Um, is that uh, basically that he's trying to figure out how to, how to understand all the things that we understand about science and how science tells us how old the cosmos is and how life seems to have evolved. Hold that with our Genesis narrative without making the Genesis narrative do like um, quantum physics, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like they didn't know relativity or, you know what I mean? Uh, But also without just kind of relegating it to sort of myth that we extract truths from. So, so I think what he wants to say, one, one thing he's proposing is that Genesis one, one describes um, God's initial creation uh, like to put sort of uh, other language on it, like describes the Big Bang. And then um, 
Genesis 1, 2 and following describes God um, taking the elements of the universe and orchestrating life from them. Um, uh, honest, obviously, whoever wrote down Genesis 1, 2 had no idea that's what they were doing, right? So this isn't something that, I mean, God is, we're going to talk about this this Sunday too, God's accommodating to the ancient cosmology. Like, how does the universe work? God's using ancient understandings of how the universe works to reveal himself. He's not using modern understandings. So you see things like pillars of the earth. And a dome was created to separate the waters. Right? Well, that's not how we would describe it. But that's how ancient people thought of cosmology. So God used that to reveal himself. So I guess that's important to say, too. I think Boyd's project is to say that, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to put that in there. Yeah, it's great. So one of the implications of this could be, like, maybe evolution isn't like the boogeyman for Christians. Maybe it doesn't necessarily negate anything in the scriptures. Right? I mean, that's, that's an implication. Like, maybe that's okay that we could listen to the science and say, hmm, pretty compelling. Listen to it on some terms. Yeah. Yes. Anything else? Nancy, go ahead. So I'm not, I, I think that I'm following what you're saying. Um, okay. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that, that there was chaos be, it, before Genesis 1, 2. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm, I'm understanding that. I think that makes a lot of sense. But then when you say that, so um, sin didn't come in or the, the chaos or bad, bad things didn't come in with, with um, Adam and Eve in the garden when they uh, ate of the fruit of the tree. So then my question then is in, in verses like in Romans where it talks about that um, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Yeah. So, and then, and then it's looking at one, the one man, and then the one man, Jesus. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we read, how do we interpret that? Yeah, then? No, that's, um, that's great. That's great. That's a great question. Um, and I, I think what I meant to say is not that bad, like, not that sin didn't, I think there's a difference between the formlessness and, the, and this is just me off the top of my head. Like there's a difference between sin, which relates to the image of God being not image, right? The image of God shirking his duties, her, you know, our duties, right? But there's, there's, a, there's a reflection of that that God calls sin that is different from the chaos, different from the formlessness, different from the void. Um, chaos, because, right? maybe because of the unique responsibility uh, that was given to the image of God, right? To say, you're, you're not like the animals, right? You can't have communion with these animals, um, you need someone like yourself. So male and female are in communion together. And then, uh, and then because they've been given this position of responsibility and they, and they uh, rebelled, shirked it, there was something that did, you know, enter into God's, but I think what it did is it entered into God's good creation, which was this garden of Eden, this, this, uh, this beachhead in, in the midst of a wider world that was still in chaos. Right. And so then the, curse, the curses come and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a great question. Yeah, a great uh, – I love that your mind went there. The other, uh, the other implication that comes up for me, I want to see what you guys think about this, is um, the concept of, like, natural evil, hurricanes, earthquakes, um, storms at sea that kill people. Like, we're uh, – Humidity. We're, What's that? Humidity. Humidity. Mosquitoes that give Ticks. people encephalitis. Ticks. Ticks, yeah. Uh, so these awful things that happen in nature, the way that we typically think of them as modern people is either as just like, well, it's just nature. What are you going to do? Let's try to control it, right? Or what do we, like, what do the insurance, the insurance industry calls them what? Acts of God. Call them acts of God, don't they? 
Isn't that interesting? I think this, I think this theory gives us a way of talking about even like the cosmos itself is like, is like a, it's like a baby having a temper tantrum, right? It's like a hurricane is like a temper tantrum that a baby's having uh, because the image that was created in order to like spread God's shalom throughout the whole earth shirked our duties. And so like, it's like we're not raising our kids right. Like the, we're not raising the earth right. And it's throwing temper tantrums and it's, the trouble is it's 30, you know, throwing temper tantrums, you know, and it's got, it's got knives. And so it's like, <laughs> once your kid gets big enough to hurt you, like you should have, you know, like helped them become something. Um, but we haven't done that. And so anyway, it gives me a new way of thinking about some of the natural like terrors that we were especially scared of in the ancient world. We're less scared of now because we've you know, found ways to mitigate those horrors. But, um, but in, an, in a realm where we're dealing with increasing issues and problems from climate change, I think it's an interesting thing to think about that there is a, there is a, there's this relationship between our taking up of our responsibilities as the image and create and the way that creation actually responds or acts or does that make sense? Not that there's a one-to-one relationship to it. I'm not trying to personalize create creation too much, but I think this, this idea that God is establishing a beachhead in order to bring order to the formlessness, uh, filling things, you know, with goodness instead of emptiness. I think there's this idea that we can look at um, there being an element of warfare, even in like natural evil, uh, storms that kill people, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, what, go ahead, Becky. Um, so I can, like when it comes to creation, like outside of humans, that's easier for me to digest. Um, I'm having this like severe uh, like pushback when it comes to people. And I don't know why for sure. It could just be what I've like learned. Um, but just the idea, like, so are you saying, let me, let me just make, like, clarify this, make sure I understand this quickly. So you're saying that, um, that this would present the idea that people like, um, like aren't broken. Like, and like they, there's not, there's not like, they're not like fallen and broken. Is that correct? I don't. I wouldn't say that. No, that's not what I intended to communicate. So how would you clarify that? that I would say, yeah, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't talking about people. Okay. Being fallen and broken. People are fallen. People are broken. Uh, we. You're saying there was a fall, but it didn't involve creation. Is that what you're saying? Oh, I guess I'm saying um, no. I think it did involve creation. That's not what I'm saying. I think it did involve creation, but I think. Um, hey, Ben. Yeah, go ahead. What are you saying? That's what's trying to figure out. Trying to figure out what I'm saying All based right. on Becky's questions. Uh, I think what I'm saying is like I think this gap theory opens up for me the possibility that the issues that we have in creation aren't just due to the fall, but are perhaps also due to the like the formlessness, the chaos, the stuff that's like trying to encroach right on so god's kind of at boyd talks about this in his book god at war like god is warring against all that is evil all that destroys goodness you know all that kind of stuff and that includes creation that there's these like creational forces that are seeking to kind of encroach uh, on goodness but I, I'm, I'm not saying that um that that's not due to humans being broken i'm actually saying it is due to humans being broken because we didn't kind of do our job and we don't do our job, right? So Which is, to, yeah, go ahead. My question would be, how does that fit in with like just innate evil in people? Say, say more about your question. Okay. Um, so I can, like, I have no problem thinking, like, I don't think that, um, that's like bad storms and things happen because of a fall. I think that it is like, it's, it's just happens. Um, but things like, um, 
uh, like mass shootings and murder and things like that, um, I think it's hard for me to fit that in because it's easier for me to accept it when I think like we're fallen and broken. Mm -hmm. And um, that that's maybe more for me, like maybe it's a more gracious way to be able to view people if I view it that way. That yeah. Sense? Well, I would, I would definitely say that um, it's more gracious in, instead of saying like they're innately evil. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I make, I'm making a separation between people and even like animals, right? Mm -hmm. So if a bear mauls me in the woods, like I, I think about that differently than if somebody attacks yeah. me, yeah. a person attacks me, it's mm -hmm. totally different, right? I, and, and I think it's because of our agency as the image of God, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, we're trying to train our dog to, you know, be to create a hospitable environment. We're trying to train our dog to not freak out when people, you know, come into the house, right? Mm -hmm. I don't blame, I don't, I mean, in my bad moments, I get mad at my dog for that, but it's ridiculous to get mad at my dog for that. She's mm -hmm. just behaving as naturally comes, you know? Um, but I think it's different when, when, there's, when there's people involved. So th this is coming to mind and this is, uh, I don't know, maybe this is helpful. Um, I was reflecting uh, with somebody the other day about the kinds of movies I can watch and the kinds I can't watch. So there's, there's a certain kind of, and this is uh, well, for what it's worth, there's a certain kind of horror movie that I can't watch and other kinds that I can. And I was trying to figure out what's the difference. So I can do a zombie movie. I love a good zombie movie. Um, I can do like a creature movie, like some crazy, you know, scary creature, alien. I can do the alien movies, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I can't do, I can't do things like saw. I can't do like torture and I can't do like supernatural demonic stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why can't I do those? But the other ones don't bother me. Right. It could be just the same kind of content. And I think it's the personal agency involved in a torture kind of thing and also demonic. I, I, I assign personal agency. Someone in those movies is intentionally harming someone else. And that is like, I put that in the category of like, oh, that's evil. And I don't want to, I find myself, I don't want to watch that. But if it's a zombie, like I don't blame the zombie. They just got bit by this virus and they're not really human anymore. They're not choosing to eat brains. You know, they, like they sort of have to, you know, or a creature. Like I love that movie, A Quiet Place. That was super interesting to me. And that's about, a, it's about a, some sort of invasion of, of creatures. So, I don't know. Does that help get at your question? I still feel like I'm trying to understand it, Becky. Yeah, I think I'm trying. I, I don't know that I'm phrasing it. I, I feel like they need to unpack a lot more for me. And I don't know sure. how. Hmm. Like, I, I don't think you're answering it wrong. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'd just love to make I, the connection if I can. I'm having a hard time articulating it mm. because it like presses up against something and I don't know what that is. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I'm having, a, <laughs> I'm having an emotional reaction to it, which is probably not yeah. surprising, but um, yeah, like it's. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great to notice. What and it's causing intense enough emotions that like my, I can't articulate it well enough. Yeah. And yeah. I don't like, know like why. Anger, anxiety, you know? Um, I think there's some, I think there's some anger in it. Hmm. I think that there's like grief and sadness in it. Wow. Yeah. I don't know why. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know where it's coming from. I can name you like the feelings I'm feeling about it. Yeah. Know, like what it's tied to or why right. I was having that kind of reaction to it. Yeah. That's why I was trying to ask more to understand it more. Yeah. But I'm not, yeah, I don't, it's not you, it's me. No, no, it's okay. I'm not feeling uncomfortable at all. Um, but by the way, uh, I think all y'all are getting involved in DNA groups come starting up, starting up soon. I just wanted to say what Becky just did in naming and I'm having this intense emotional reaction and I don't know why. That is a key skill in DNA groups. 
It's like, Becky, you're primed, like you're ready to go. That's what we call a Kairos in the business. So, you guys are all getting ready to be part of the business. So, um, so yeah, so, so it's, if we had more time and this was a DNA group, we'd say, let's explore that. And we'd ask more questions and we'd say, like, what's up with that? What are you doing? Or what, what, you know, what thoughts does it bring up? Like, what, can you name the feelings? And what was the concept that was upsetting to you? And that kind of thing. We're trying to find in there, like, there's beliefs that we have about reality, about God, about, you know, ourselves that we, that we uncover. We call it digging. We just we look to uncover these things, and then we look at them, and we say, is this true? Is this, is this something that comports with the gospel and revelation of God in Christ? And if not, then we say, oh, okay, well, it's a, it's a lie. Look at there. I believe a lie about something. And it's causing these, you know, issues or whatever. Uh, and then we proclaim good news, you know, whatever that is, what, whatever dispels that bad news to say, now this is, this is the truth about you, about God in Christ or, or whatever. And then, uh, and then you, then you respond to it. It's a super simple process. But I, I love, I love that you uh, are already kind of noticing some of those things. So thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, hey, it probably is worth mentioning, Ben. Yep. That that thing you proposed isn't like official church teaching. Yes, that is worth mentioning. I'm throwing ideas out there because I I love doing that. It's like interesting things to talk about on a Tuesday night. Right. It's not dogma. Right. In the, in the official sense, which is like, which is like, was Jesus Christ raised from the dead? That's kind of dogma. It's like you know, I don't know how this faith works unless that happened, but. Yes. It's probably worth mentioning that. And it's also probably worth mentioning like the text that Nancy brought up about from Romans. Mm-hmm. Like this is, that's one of the biggest issues that keeps people from moving towards understanding Genesis the way we're talking about it. So if you understand Genesis one through three as like straight up history that happened 6,000 years ago or more but like there was this moment of a garden and two people and everybody came from those two people. Like if you move beyond or past that, it's like those old maps that sailors used to have back in the 1600s. Like they didn't know where it went and they just wrote there be dragons. Right. You know, as like this, well, don't go there because that's where the scary things are. And I think, I think uh, Ben and I want to have a hermeneutic, not of fear, but of love meaning like we have to be able to name and own, Hey, this really scares me to try to figure out how to honor what Paul said as scripture and ask hard questions about did Jesus and Paul think Adam was a literal historical figure or did they not? Or does it matter as much as I think it does? Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, like Paul at one point says, Cretans are all liars and drunkards. Like, I don't believe that. That's not a part of our church doctrine. Right. Right. Paul said it. But Paul said it. I believe it. That settles it. No, like, uh, I don't know any Cretans. Right. But like, if I said that about women or Latinos, like, that'd be awful. Right. That'd be awful. So like, so I also have to do with the Kairos I have of I'm okay with saying, well, that's just Paul being irascible. I mean, if I was under house arrest, I'd probably say something like, you know what I mean? Like, that's just Paul being Paul. But then like with the Adam stuff, like I'm like, no, you got to be locked on here dead right. So like, I've got this filter where I can like, forgive him for the Cretan comment. But then I've got all kinds of angst about the Adam comment. And I've got to wrestle with that yeah. and face it like facing myself that, you know, I use different interpretive strategies to deal with this passage from Titus and this passage from Romans. Right. And I do it because his um, ethnicity, ethnicity it's not really racism. Um, Ethnicism. Ethnicism. <laughs> it violates my 21st century 
sensibilities. And I think for good reason. Right. But you have to be willing, you have to be willing to face the fact that you are employing a hermeneutic whenever you come to the text and a hermeneutic just means a strategy for interpretation. Like I'm employing a way of understanding this text. I'm not just reading it as it is. There's a, I'm bringing something to it, which is my own perspective, my own assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of the hermeneutic of love that Matt's talking about is, uh, is number one, like loving the, loving the text in a sense, like I'm not standing over it and trying to analyze it and dissect it, but I'm receiving it as, okay, this is God's word. You know, I'm not sure, you know, all that means, but I'm, I'm, you know, receiving it, but also like a hermeneutic of love for, for God, you know, for, for others and love casts out fear. And so there's no, that we don't, we can, we can examine our own hermeneutic without fear and say, well, let's, let's see what the implications are. Let's try on this set of glasses, you know, like what if we looked at the text this way? Does that make more sense? Does that make less sense? Um, let's try it. Let's try it. Look, look at it this way, you know, put on different sets of glasses. It's safe to do that. You don't, you don't go to hell for trying on a new set of glasses. So. Yeah. And I guess all I'm saying is like, I, I want there, I want to have a community where we can ask those questions. Yes. Because we're a creedal tradition. Anglicanism is creedal. Like we can, we confess the creed and we don't major on this is the date Jesus is coming back. Or this is, uh, this is the place the ark came to rest. Yeah. Right. We don't major on those things. So that's uh, part of the attractiveness of our tradition for me. Yes, me too. It's a big tent. There's a lot of room. There's a lot of room in the, under, the, under the creed. So good. Folks, anything? Melody, just wanted to say hi. Glad hi. you made it. Good, good to see you. Um, any, anything else, friends, before we call it a night? Yeah, Matt? I have, I think this, this first chapter of Genesis is fascinating mm -hmm. because there's this rhythm to creation. I know, I know like, uh, this is too late to talk about this. There's this <laughs> rhythm and cadence to like, and there was, it was night and it was morning the first day. It was night and morning the second day, blah, 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 blah. But there's these little changes in the rhythm that fascinate me. Like some days certain phrases are left out. Um, um, like the, like the pattern is broken and I like, I often wonder like, is that intentional? Mm. Like, is there intentionality behind breaking the pattern? Um, so that, that's, that's one of the things that interests me just from like a pure textual perspective. The other thing is like this, uh, the verbs, there's two verbs to create in Genesis one. One is barah. And one is something else maybe Andrea knows because she's an Old Testament wizard. Um, and what's interesting is that God shares his creative abilities with his creation. Mm -hmm. And so, like, there's this interesting text. Listen to this. This is really cool. I've got lots of... Uh, versions laying around. Here we go. This is the version I want. Bring me my scroll. Um, where is this? Well, while you look for it, I wanted to say that uh, they sent me uh, John Goldengay's new translation of the Old Testament. And that thing, that thing is pretty cool. Who's they? I, whoever the publisher is. <laughs> These people, they send me books. The people? The people. It's maybe InterVarsity. I don't know. You should say the men in black. Hey, look, look it up. Look it up and then tell me what verse it is. I'm going to go get uh, the Golden Gate translation. I got it right here, buddy. I got it right here. Right. <laughs> you got Golden Gate? No. Nope. Uh, let me go get Golden Gate. I got the B-I-B-L-E because that's the book for me. Tell me, tell me the verse. Basis, basic instructions before leaving earth is what I have been. What do you have? Uh, <laughs> no, um, this is really interesting. Listen to this. This is, and I, I mean, you guys have all read Genesis one, what a hundred times or heard it a hundred times. 
Um, shall we wait for Ben to get back? I'll wait. No, Ben. Go ahead. I'm back. All right. Genesis one twenty four. Listen to this and tell me what you like if you catch this. And God said, "Let the earth, let the earth." bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. Like, it struck me that like, I don't know. Read, read verse 24 and 25 of, the, of Ye Old Golden Gay. Ye Old Golden Gay translation says this. God said the earth is to bring forth living creatures by their species, animals, moving things, and living things of the earth by their species. So it came to be. God made the living things of the earth by their species, animals by their species, and all things that move on the ground by their species. God saw that it was good. So what struck me was verse 24 and 25 seemed to be like, repetitious it's the same thing seems like it's the same thing and so like what struck me was like the the only difference is verse 24 says god commanded the earth to bring it forth and verse 25 is god did it now the reason why it struck me is because back previously and that uh and um uh, let the earth bring forth is the, one of the words for create in verse 24. And God made the wild animals. That's, that's a word for create. The reason why it struck me is because I noticed back in verse 22. Um, wait, is it verse 22? Where's, where, where does he? Oh, here, no, verse 11. Um, God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit and seed with it. And it was so, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation. So what's interesting is when God commands the earth to let vegetation come forth, the earth responds and vegetation springs out of it. When God commands the earth to produce animals, God has to make it. That's, that's kind of how it struck me this time, and it never struck me like that before. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's the, the only way to read it. I'm just saying there's a shift, right? In the plants and an, uh, plants, God commands the earth, the earth does it. With the animals, God commands the earth, and then we're told God did it. Hmm. And that's just fascinating to me. It's really fast on two levels. One is God shares creational activity with the things he creates. So the earth gets to bring forth life that God doesn't speak into being. So as you think about how do we make sense of like, um, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to preach about this this Sunday a bit, but we make sense of like just, just the science that we are understanding now about how life emerged and exists. It seems like here we have a sense that God isn't this hegemonic regent who's a control freak and has to create everything with his words, but he's giving away creational power to his creation to create more. That's the first thing I'm noticing, right, with the vegetation and plants. The second thing I'm noticing is, and this is a big question mark for me, does it always work? It's kind of funny, and, and who knows, you know, how people feel about this, but it's kind of funny to imagine God saying, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And then the earth is like, I can't, I, I don't know, I can't do it. <laughs> I don't know what you want from me. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, you can't, okay, well, that didn't work. I'll do it. <laughs> well, it's, it's also interesting that, like, God wants the earth to produce wild, like, animals. Yeah. And then we're told he makes them. But then he, in Genesis 2, the, he actually forms humanity out of the earth. Yeah. Right? So we've got like this, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I'm just saying like, as I read this again, it strikes me and I have lots of questions about it. And it could just be like a poetic thing. 
but there's a definitive shift in the language between plants and animals that struck me. Plants, the other, part of, the other part about it that I noticed is plants are part of the first part, the first days one and three, where God's creating the outline, the structure. Mm -hmm. Plants are part of the structure. The form, if you the will. Form, and then the, the filling of the form, the stuff, the animals are in the stuff part. Like here's the stuff that goes in there. Which, which I, don't, uh, I only got through 20 minutes of your 30-minute sermon, Ben, because... Um, my family's got to eat. I got other you're words. An, you're an Anglican and you can only listen to 20 minute sermons. I cut it off for 20 minutes. All I listen to is 20 minutes. Uh, Matt, Matt and I are both working hard to try to preach a 20 minute sermon. So we'll see who gets there really first. Hard, but, um, it's really hard. It's <laughs> super hard. Um, uh, suburb church props. Yep. Um, how learn how to preach. That's how long it goes. It's hard. But the, the form, the day one through three, and the filling, days uh, four through six, correspond to tov, tohu vabohu. Mm -hmm. Formless and void gets formed and filled. Right? Do you see that? Do you guys see that? Genesis 1-2 tells us the earth was formless and with and void. Or which empty. The Hebrew word is tohu vabohu. And then days 1 through 3 is forming and days 4 through 6 is filling. Like filling the void, yes, forming the formlessness and filling the void. Did you say that in your sermon? I actually said it in the class tonight, so that's what that's why it's a little funny to me. Did you say that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> it must be time to end. It must be. It must be. That's why I'm giggling just a little bit. So, but it's good uh, for those in the back who maybe didn't hear that. So, <laughs> because it's really cool. It is a cool. Uh, it is a cool thing. So. Uh, all right, guys, it's time to end. It's time to put our kids to bed. Uh, it's time to put ourselves to bed if we, if we have kids and selves uh, to put to bed. So um, lovely to be with you tonight. Uh, let me pray a prayer over us before we go, and then we will end this call, and we'll see you soon. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. Give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. Blessings, friends. Really good to be with you. I look forward to seeing you all soon. Bye. Thank you.